what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Matthew 22, verses 23 through 40. So 23 to 40, but right now before we begin the sermon as we go into this time, we're just going to read 29 down to 33. So right now we're going to read 29 to 33, but we're going to cover that, that whole portion. So let's read God's word together right now. Verse 29 of chapter 22, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, following that incredible time of music, uh, we're reminded that worship is not just what we do during music time, God, that we continue to worship you right now. But God, I feel, I feel a real weight just after the, the goodness of those songs and what it means to lift our voices to you and through the choir. God, there's, there's a weight of what it means to gather right now. God, we're so easily distracted, and, and I find myself in that, that camp right now. God, let us not waste this time. God, your word speaking to us, your spirit moving. Guard our hearts against taking this lightly. God, we want to hear from your word. We need you to speak to us. God, these are hard topics, important topics that we find this morning in Scripture. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would move in a powerful way in our hearts and our minds. God, help us especially this morning through these verses to hear how good and powerful and loving you are. God, with whatever we go home, may we remember that you are good and you are powerful and you are loving. God, we believe that. Let us see that right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I don't know what the case is for your family, uh, but in our family, with little kids at home and Frankly, this would be true whether we had kids at home or not, whatever the case. We love to play games together. Uh, now, you would say, oh, the pastor's home, when they play card games or board games, they must like hold hands and encourage each other before every play and, and pray for everyone. And no, 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 no. Like, you know, throwing cards and throwing pieces. And, you know, that's, that's how it goes. I just hate to, hate to lose, especially games like this. So we got a card game over uh, Christmas Uno Flip. Now, how many have played Uno before? Uno, a few Uno. Oh, lots of Uno hands. That's good. That's good. So, Uno. Uno Flip is incredible. Uh, it is one of the greatest card games I think I've ever played, especially for families, frankly, for anybody. But So, you play regular Uno where you're trying to match the number or the color or lay down a particular card, but the Uno cards and Uno Flip on the back they have a dark side to them. So they have different numbers and different colors and different cards on the back. And so let's just pretend 
that Pastor Owen lays down a card and goes uno because he only has one card left in, in his hand, and it'd be almost impossible to lose at this point because of the card that I have in my hand and how this game is playing itself out. So it goes around the circle, and let's just say it gets to Amanda, and she plays the flip card. You know what you do in no, no, flip? When the flip card is played, you have to flip the entire deck. You flip the card in your hand, you flip the draw deck, you flip the discard deck, and everything flips over, and now I no longer have the winning card. You know how bad it hurts to lose to your wife when she sets you up in, in a card game in a situation like that? Like all those pastoral feelings that I wish were there in that moment just are, just are not there. Uh, here's how Uno Flip is so important to what we're talking about this morning. Let's say you hold the card of power. You're in control of the game. There is almost no way you can lose because of the control and the power that you have. And then somebody comes in and they flip it on you. And now you no longer have the power. Now everything has been turned upside down. I want you to have that image and think about what we're looking at this morning. Matthew 22, verse 23. What happens when you have the power and somebody comes in and flips it on you? Verse 23, the same day Sadducees came to Jesus. And these Sadducees, they say that there's no resurrection, and so they came and asked him a question. Now there's a lot of things going on in that verse, but, but I want to make sure we, we catch the key points. When it says that they come to ask him a question, this is the second of three questions in a row that Matthew gives us in this story of Jesus here. So there's three questions, and these are not questions they ask where they really wholeheartedly want the answer they are asking questions here to trap Jesus that's the purpose of these questions they're not questions where they really want to know the answer they're they're trying to trap him and when the Sadducees come this is a very particular group of people during this time of Jesus's ministry the Sadducees were the people who kind of had the power they had the money they owned a lot of land they were in good control of the temple. They were in pretty good relationship with Rome, with the Roman Empire. They didn't want things to change. The Sadducees had power, and they had control, and they had money, and they liked the way things were. Here's the other thing about the Sadducees. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They wouldn't have called it the Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament. They only accepted the five books of Moses, those five books of the law, as the Scripture. Everything else, the prophets and the wisdom writings that came later, they didn't count that as the Word of God. They only took the five first books of the Old Testament. The Sadducees also did not believe in angels. They didn't believe in God's direct involvement in the world, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, when we say resurrection, this is so important this morning to make sense of everything that comes after. So I want to be clear when I say resurrection. Most people at the time of Jesus, most Jewish people at the time of Jesus, believe that in the future, at the end times, there would be a general resurrection of the dead. There was some conception of this. Now, Jesus' resurrection is going to break into history and bring resurrection power in a way that goes beyond anything that people would have ever imagined. But the Sadducees, they said, you're born, you live, you die. That's the end of the story. There was no resurrection in Sadducee beliefs. 
which is why they're, why they're sad, you see. Ah, yeah, terrible theology joke, but it's worth throwing out there, okay? So if you're trying to remember the Sadducees, who were the Sadducees? They were sad, you see. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Now, here's the only problem with that. They weren't actually sad. <laughs> they were actually quite content and quite happy because they had the power, they had the stability, they knew how things worked. Watch what they do to Jesus when Jesus comes up here. What does it look like if you don't believe in the resurrection? Verse 24, they came up saying, teacher, Moses said, why does it matter that Moses said this? Because that's all they took as scripture. That's all they took as the word of God. So they're going to draw something from the teaching of Moses that they count as scripture. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, they're going to take this concept from the teaching of Moses, from those first five books of the Old Testament, that's called leveret marriage, this idea that if a man passes away and he doesn't have any offspring to carry on the legacy, his brother is required, or at least strongly suggested, to step in and to take that role and raise up children, raise up offspring for his late brother who, who has passed. Now, there is an incredible play on words that happens here in this verse. The Sadducees, remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in any type of thing like that. So they say if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up the same word for resurrection. The Sadducees' idea of resurrection is that someone would carry on your legacy, that your name would carry on, that your legacy would carry on, that your power and privilege, that's their idea of resurrection. Instead, though, Jesus is going to take that and take it in a very different direction. Now, watch what happens in the next verse. Verse 25. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So, too, the second and the third, down to the seventh. How many have seen Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Anybody? Yep, I watched that with my parents when I was little. Uh, so this is one bride for seven brothers. This is a little bit uh, of a different spin. Now, there is an early church commentator, early church father named Chrysostom, one of the great preachers of, of all times. And Christendom, when he was speaking about this passage, he said that obviously this is a made-up story, but because by the time he got to the fourth brother, there's no way he's participating. <laughs> because he saw what happened to his three brothers before him. This lady is obviously bad news. There's no way he's getting involved. And so as early as the early church fathers, they're like, there's something strange going on in, in this story here. But you see what the, what the Sadducees are doing. What the Sadducees are doing is imagine you walk up to the magic table and the magician lays out the cups and puts the ball under one cup and then begins to move the cups back and forth. They're, they're trying to trick him. They're trying to say, hey, can you follow this, Jesus? Can you see what's happening? Verse 27. After them all, the woman died. There's a lot of death that's being put forward in, in this story that the Sadducees are telling. And then they say in verse 28, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? 
for they all had her. Now you see what's going on. They're trying to make belief in the resurrection look absurd. Because they're saying, Jesus, if you follow this legacy, or or this logic, if you follow what's happening right here, these brothers are going to be committing sin in the afterlife. The resurrection's absurd. It's not going to work out. You, You don't understand what's happening here. And then Jesus turns around and says in verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. When it says you are wrong, the way the words work there, it's you are deceiving yourselves. In other words, think about it like this way. You walk up to the magic table and the Sadducees put the ball under the cup and they're moving the cups around. Jesus, can you follow this? Can you follow this? And then they lift up the cups, and Jesus is holding the ball. <laughs> He's like, ah, you thought you were running the magic trick. In fact, you are the ones deceiving yourselves because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So he's going to identify two factors related to the resurrection, and then he's going to take these in reverse order. So look at the next verse. He's going to start with this idea of the power of God. Verse 30, for in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. You don't understand the power of God. This idea that what you see and what you experience right now is not necessarily how things are always going to be. God has power that goes beyond what you see and what you experience right now. Now this verse is so important that we're going to slow down just for a minute and and think about this verse. What you see going on here that Jesus is saying, this whole question about marriage that you're trying to put to me about who is this wife going to be married to in the afterlife, that question is not pertinent because you don't understand what life is going to be like in the time of the resurrection, in the new creation. There's not going to be marriage the way we understand. In fact, there's going to be no marriage and no being given in marriage. A few clarifications from this verse. Number one, at death, we do not become angels, we become like angels. As the angels are not involved in marriage, neither will we be in the resurrection. Now with just all the pastoral gentleness, and hear me out on this, when when someone loses a loved one, especially the trauma of, of losing a child, and they talk about how heaven has gained another angel or something like that, that's not the time to step in and correct someone's theology at, at that point. We, we want to be so careful and gentle about that, but we also realize that's not how things work. God is not saying that after death, in the resurrection, we become angels, but in this respect, we become like angels. Neither does it mean that gender will be eliminated. It's not as if gender is eliminated, because we see with the resurrection of Jesus, there's a continuity to the body, We still exist in a body. We still live as as people, but it's a new creation. It's a new time. So we don't become angels. We don't lose gender. Equally, I don't think it means that you will not have any type of special affection for your spouse or for your family in the resurrection. What it means is there is not an exclusive covenant between a man and a woman the way there is now in this world, in this time. That in the resurrection, in the new creation for eternity, we don't exist in those type of exclusive 
covenants. And yes, let's draw the logical conclusion here. Sigh of sadness. By all accounts, there will be no sexuality in the resurrection, in the new creation. To which we say, remember that our understanding of pleasure and God's goodness and God's generosity, how we understand that now pales in comparison to what life would be like in the resurrection, in the new creation. It would be like a child who only knows those incredibly disgusting mashed up peas and carrots that little kids eat. Like if that's all you knew and you had never tasted real good food, the kind of food that says that's worth, it's our understanding of God's goodness and the pleasures of this world are like that little kid eating mashed up peas and carrots versus all the goodness that God desires to provide for his people. And so marriage is given right now in this world for God's purposes that we're going to talk about a little bit later, but marriage is never meant to be ultimate, and marriage is never meant to be eternal. It's for this world. Jesus says in the resurrection, God has the power to do new things that go beyond anything you could ever imagine. Then he uses a scripture to show them why this is the case. Verse 31. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Well, of course they've read it, but here's, here's what he points out in verse 32. God says in Exodus, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So what Jesus does here, he takes one of the verses that they would have considered to be the word of God, and he says, if you would have really read that verse and really thought about it, you would see why the resurrection is not absurd. Why we are not just for this world and for this life, that there is an eternality to this. There is a foreverness to this. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If God is eternal and he has made his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that covenant, God's relationship with them, doesn't stop at their death. It, it continues. Then look what, how the people respond. 33, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is kind of the mic drop moment of the, uh, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now this is shocking. This is really shocking. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. You would have thought they would have started to applaud as well. Wow, that's great, Jesus. But they don't like what he's about either. So they're going to gather together and they're going to come back at him with a question. And who better to use but a lawyer. All right? So verse 35 and one of them, they're like, this is the last chance we have. Send in the lawyer. We don't know what else to do. 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, this question seems random to us, 
But this was the type of question that the religious leaders would sit around and talk about. We have writings from the ancient world where people give their response to this particular question. That they would talk about which matters of the law were heavy and which matters of the law were light. And there was, this was a question that was batted around. And, and so they're trying to get Jesus to pick a law that then they can come back and say, yeah, but you don't understand all the law. So what does Jesus do? He says in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He goes to Deuteronomy 6 to a passage that they would have thought about every single day of their life. And he said, if you understand that, that is what frames all of the commandments. That's what makes sense of our relationship with God. And then he continues He says, this is the great and first commandment, but 39, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on this idea of loving God and loving others. Famously, even the Ten Commandments seem to be divided in these two ways, love for God and love for others. Now watch what Jesus has done here. You have a story about marriage and the ways in which marriage is essentially a temporary, limited part of God's creation. And then what follows that? A passage about love, which is going to be eternal and which is not limited just to this world or just to a couple of relationships, it's to be given to God and it's to be given to others. So if we understand the resurrection, the resurrection changes everything about the way we think about life. It changes everything about the way that we live. So here's what we're going to do the rest of the time this morning. I want us to take this idea of resurrection and ask, based on this passage, How does the resurrection change the way that I live my life? This understanding that Jesus died for us and then rose again, and because of his resurrection, we have a hope of a future resurrection. If that is true, if you're here this morning and say, I believe that is true, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe that because of his resurrection, I have the hope of a future resurrection. I have the hope of eternity. If that is true, here's the question. So what? What kind of impact does that make on the way that we live our lives? If you don't believe that that is true, you're like, ah, I'm not sure I'm buying that idea of Jesus' resurrection, and I'm pretty sure that this world is all that exists. I would say just to begin at that point and, and ask yourself the same question, so what? If this world is all that exists, how does that impact the way I live? But if there is a resurrection, how does that change everything? All right, let's begin this way. Based on this passage, the resurrection impacts the way that I approach marriage. We've already said that marriage in God's creation is temporary, meaning it's for this world, it's for this time. Why? Why, why is it that way? Why has God set it up that way? Why is giving in marriage and continuing to give in marriage, why is that not an eternal thing? It's because God has given us marriage in order to procreate, to, to have families, to fill the earth, to pass on his love and his law and his, his, his gift of 
um, life to, to the world, but also, don't miss this, this is what I'm trying to really drive at, marriage, according to the New Testament, is a, to be a picture of the gospel. When a man and a woman come together in that covenant of marriage, you are showing the world the relationship that God desires to have with his people, with his church, with his bride. When the resurrection happens, when the new creation happens, when we are with God forever, there's no need for that picture that marriage provides in this world. So marriage is designed to do something now in a broken and hurting world that it's not designed to do in eternity. So we have a focus to marriage, a purpose to marriage that God has given us right now that we want to live out. But here's the thing. Because it's not eternal, because it's not ultimate, we're set free from having to find all of our identity in marriage. We're set free from worshiping marriage by being driven by it. So there's these two extremes. One extreme says, I don't care about marriage. I do whatever I want. The other extreme says, it's all I think about it is the only place that I find my identity. The beauty of the teaching of Jesus is it comes right in the middle. It says marriage is valuable. It has incredible value in the kingdom of God. There's a way that we're supposed to carry this out, but it's not ultimate. It's not our true and eternal identity. Jesus allows us to live in the middle of those two. How do we do that? Well, we learn from one another. We learn from one another how to do that. Shameless plug, absolutely shameless advertisement here for the Emmaus Marriage Night coming up on, on February 9th. If you're trying to figure out how do I invest in my marriage, how do I live this out, what does this look like, I encourage you to be a part of that. We want to do a good job at Emmaus of, of investing in marriages, making sure you're growing your relationship with one another. You might say, yeah, I don't really need that. That means you need that if you think, I really don't, really don't need that. The other thing that you can do for your marriage is just to make sure you're a part of a group. Make sure you're connected to other couples. Because let's be honest, marriage is not easy. It's incredibly difficult. And we get distracted by the purposes, and we get taken off in all kinds of other directions. But, but when we're around other couples, we're able to come back and say, no, this is how we're supposed to live this out. Here's the other part, though. Because of the teaching of Jesus about resurrection and marriage, it impacts the way we think about singleness. So as Christians, singleness is not a curse. It's a way that we're able to live out our lives as part of the kingdom of God because my ultimate identity is not found in whether I'm married or not married. It's found in the resurrection of Jesus, my, my relationship with him. And so as Christian singles, you're able to say, I have a good, godly desire for marriage. That is a good and godly desire, but Christian singles don't have to be desperate. A desire is good, desperation is not, because desperation says everything about my life is tied up in whether I'm married or I'm not. No, of course it's not. There's, there's so much more to it, and so in, I love this next quote uh, that comes up here from, from Kostenberger, who's a Southern Baptist professor and, and commentator, he's got this idea of singleness that I think matches really well with the picture of Scripture. He says that Scripture unfolds toward singleness. Here's what he means by this. In creation, singleness is non-existent. Now, obviously, that's after Adam and Eve have come together. But he's talking about with that command, it's not good to be alone. Adam and Eve are brought together. You don't see any type of singleness happening right there. 
in the Old Testament, it's very uncommon, and it's generally even considered undesirable to be single. It's very rare that you find that in the Old Testament. By the time you get to the New Testament, you have Jesus and Paul, two extremely prominent figures in the New Testament who are single. And by the time you get to eternity, singleness is universal. And so our lives are not driven toward, I have to pursue marriage because that's going to impact my eternity. Our lives are driven to, how does the resurrection impact the way I think about marriage? How does the resurrection impact the way I think about my singleness? And just for a minute, this, this is helpful, and I, I, it's not the main purpose, and so I don't want to belabor it too much. But this teaching of Jesus is so helpful when we think about the world in which we live and the, and the challenges that people face with same-sex attraction and homosexuality and same-sex marriage and all the things that come with that, this teaching of Jesus is so helpful in this because sexuality and marriage is given by God for a very good and holy purpose. But you don't see this movement in the teaching of Jesus toward, hey, let's express that however we want or without bounds. In fact, the movement in the teaching of Jesus is very much the other direction. It's saying sexuality and marriage is for this world for a very particular and good purpose, but it's not the defining reality. It doesn't own us in any particular way. Now, does that take away the temptations? No, it doesn't. Does that take away, take away the challenge? No, not at all. But our hearts are driven by the resurrection of Jesus, by what it means to live as his people, not this world is all that exists, so I better get all my pleasure right now. You see, that's the challenge, right? If there is no resurrection, if this world is all that exists, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I should be playing golf right now. If this world is all that exists, if there is no resurrection, live for whatever you want right now. Gain all the pleasure you can get right now. Get the power, hold on to the power, gain the money, gain the success. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and if this world is not all that exists, it changes everything about the way that we live. If you look at the next slide, it's not just marriage and singleness. The resurrection of Jesus impacts the way we think about work. My life is not defined by my job. My life is not defined by how much money I make. Work is a good gift of God in creation and will continue to be a good gift of God in the new creation. We will work, but not as those who are trying to always gain things, but those who are working for the glory of God. Play is a good thing, but my life is not dominated by play. I live because of the joy that God has given me in Christ. My goals, what I consider successful, the resurrection changes all of that. Here's the really, really difficult part of this, Emmaus. It's one thing to come in here this morning and say, you know what, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely I believe in that. And, and I don't think this world is all that exists. I think there's a future life, and, and what I believe about Jesus impacts the future life. Where it gets really tricky is how does my belief in the resurrection impact today and tomorrow? If I believe the resurrection is true, how does that change what I live for? How does that change the way my life operates Here's what the resurrection should do for you. Our final slide this morning and the way Jesus works these stories together, here's what the resurrection should do. If I believe that the resurrection is true, 
both the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection, it drives me to a deeper love for God and it drives me to a deeper love for one another. What does the resurrection do in the people of God? If we believe it is true, we begin to worship and love God in a way that we never could otherwise. Some of you in your lives and your family have gone through suffering and trauma that goes so far beyond anything I could ever imagine. We have church members now that are battling suffering and difficulty that I can't even hardly make sense of. In fact, I can't make sense of it. The only way I know to deal with some of the suffering that we see in the world is because of the hope of the resurrection. No cross, no resurrection, I don't know how you deal with some of the suffering and trauma that people go through. But because of the salvation that we have through God, because of the hope of the resurrection, because of his continual work in our life, when we believe that that is true, it leads us to love him in a way that we never could otherwise. And when we begin to do that, it leads us to love one another. Here's where this works really well. If you have your Bible open, I don't have this on the screen, but I wanna show you something. If you will look back in this story that Jesus just told, it's gonna be back in verse 28. This is Matthew 22, 28. It's not up on the screen, but I'll explain it to you because I want you to see how this fits together here at the end. We're called to love God and love others. Matthew 22, 28, and this story that the Sadducees were telling about marriage and, and the resurrection, it says, in the resurrection, remember, they're being absurd, they're being sarcastic, in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Ooh, do you feel the, do you feel the possessiveness going on there? If we're not careful, if this life is all that we know, and all that we are living for, we will end up using other people instead of truly loving other people. The way that we are set free to authentically, deeply love one another is when we find freedom in Christ because of what he has done for us. Here's what I want you to leave with today. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, and if this life is not all that exists, if there's a future resurrection, it changes the way I live my life. It changes what I live for. It changes what I consider successful. It changes how I treat other people. It changes the way I think about my relationship with God. And so what we're gonna do to help with that is we're going to sing a final song about the hope of the resurrection. And during that song, if you need someone to pray with, we're up here at the front. We want to pray for you. If you just need to come up and say, Lord, I, I need to refocus my life around the hope of the resurrection. You want to spend time in prayer right where you are, or up here at the front, we want you to have the freedom to do that. After that last song, we'll take up our offering. If you have questions about the resurrection, maybe you say, I've never really thought about the resurrection of Jesus very much before, but I have questions about that. I'd like to talk to somebody, but there's no way I'm coming down here to the front. Just write a note on one of those little cards and put it on the offering plate, and, and we'll get in touch with you. We want you to understand the importance of what we talked about this morning. Let's pray together, Emmaus, and then we're going to sing. God, I know it's true of my life that, that I go many days without maybe thinking about the word resurrection or, or thinking about eternity. But God, that should not be the case for us. When we think about our marriages, 
and our families and our careers and our homes and all that you've given us, God. Help us to see from the teaching of Jesus today that the resurrection changes everything. God, set us free. Set us free from living simply for the things that are right now, the pleasures that we have around us, the things that we see. God, these things can be good gifts from you, but they are terrible gods, and they will take us so far from you. God, set us free. God, thank you for your gentleness with us. Thank you for your patience and your goodness and your power and your love. God, I pray for those this morning who are really battling with their belief about the resurrection, whether this is true or whether it's just something they've heard in church. God, I pray for those who might come in this morning with a lot of shame or a lot of confusion around things we've talked about. They're battling inside about what it is to trust and follow Jesus. God, let them know how good you are. Let them know your love for them. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we are able to love you and we're able to love one another. God, let us do that well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.